Hello, I am your host. My name is Mike Bankhead. I am a bass player and songwriter from Dayton, Ohio. Today, it is my honor to have a conversation. Well, I've had the conversation already. It is my honor to present to you the conversation I had with a bass player who is originally from Dayton, but now lives in Colorado, the one and only Adam Edwards. I spent a lot of time when I was much younger watching Adam play shows. I used to watch his hands carefully when he would play the songs, and I learned a lot from him. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation. So uh, yesterday, I talked to Grainy for for the podcast. Oh, yeah, nice. It's one. He's an interesting. I mean, you know this already, but he's an interesting fella. Oh, that's that's an understatement to be sure. Yeah, his episode, I haven't edited it yet, but I have it scheduled for March 9th, so that gives me I need to get it done this weekend. You are you are Adam Edwards and I would like you to tell your origin story. All right. Um, you're like a hero to me, so Oh man, that's really nice of you to say and I was so used to your smiling face and the crowds in the in my early days that if you weren't there, it wasn't the same. So I always appreciated you being such a fan of Shrug and everything we were doing back then. But I mean, my origin, I grew up mostly in Uber Heights until I was about 16. And then I lived in Inglewood. Um, started going to local shows. That was like my big turn. When I was 14 or 15, there was a club in New Carlisle that was all ages and all the bands would play there it was called rebos it was sober backwards because they didn't serve any alcohol and so i'd say i mean i think my first show there was 14 i was 14 and i that's where i saw the guys i would end up playing with five six years later i saw all of them there because I was a little younger than everybody. So I saw Todd's first earlier band, which was Tim. And then I saw Dan's earlier band, which was Wallaroo South. And then, of course, there was like Brainiac and, you know, Haunting Souls and all the predecessors to all the bands we knew a few years later. And never thought I'd end up playing with all those guys. And... Had a couple bands I played guitar for between 16 and 19. I didn't pick up a bass till I was 19. So really got into that world heavy. And that's kind of where everything started for me for real. Because the previous bands were like high school groups and stuff like that. Not that they weren't good in their own right to some degree. But guitar just, it didn't... Bass grabbed me so quickly when I picked it up. And so I'd say 1920 is when you saw me like a year later, probably. And playing with Dan and Todd was, I mean, there was no way to become a good bassist faster than that. You know, you know, Dan's drumming. He is a metronome. He is so on it. So yeah, that's that kind of leads up to where you and I would have met um when I was playing for Shrug. Um and I mean those were awesome days. And I was thinking I was thinking about talking to you earlier today, and I thought one of the things I should acknowledge is I was just about to be old enough to legally drink when I joined Shrug. And if I hadn't been in a band with Dan and Todd who weren't drinkers, partiers, I probably would have died during that four or five years. (laughs) But yeah, so yeah, let's let's talk about uh, those days when you and I started encountering each other. Yeah, I was going to go chronological. Uh, Shrug was the first Dayton band I ever saw. I feel like I said this oh, on the podcast, awesome. but I can, I can, yeah. Um, it was real quick. I was, I used, I had a 
job at a call center and I was driving home one night and back in the day 103.9 before it was owned by iHeartRadio or Clear Channel <sighs> had a local music show on Sunday nights remember Joe's Garage that's yep yep that's and right I would drive home and it's funny I've met a lot of the since then I've met a lot of the people whose bands I used to listen to I remember I never liked ska, but I always liked those crusty watch guy songs they'd play. And come to find out later that Joe oh. Andrew Joe Andrew was in that band and I had no idea at the time because I didn't know him, right? So now I know him and um Man, I haven't heard that name in forever. Yeah, I, the crusty watch guys. Yeah. But they uh they play shrug songs and I remember thinking it was great and then there was going to be a show at Canal Street, and they said it on the radio, and I thought, wow, a band that's from here, and there's a show, and it's only like $5, and I can go. And so I lived in Xenia, and none of my friends wanted to go. Like, and I had never gone to a local music show. I didn't know there was a thriving music community in Dayton. I had no idea. All I knew was I like music. I heard this band I liked. I want to go see them. Why should I care that they're not, like, you know, on MTV? Right. The song is good. I like the song. I can spend five bucks to go see the show. Why will none of my friends wanted to come? Whatever. So I went by myself. And I will say this to anybody. Um, I say this to everybody I talk to about, about playing music or doing a show. Had any of the three of you guys been jerks to me, I never would have come back. But you were uh, all very nice. <laughs> you were all very nice. And I enjoyed the show. So I went to another one. And then I went to another one. But like the fourth show, you figure out who the people are that are coming to see you regularly, right? Um, Dayton's not that big of a town, so. Yeah, and that's what's funny about the, the art scene in Dayton. It's It's been thriving for so long, but it's not that big of a town. Like It still blows me away to be a musician from Dayton because I learned so much there. And, you know, the funny part is about you bringing up Joe Anderl and the Krusty Watch Guys is one of my last bands before I ended up in Shrug a little later. I played guitar for a ska band. It was like one of the only other ska bands in Dayton. And we got all the great bills for like a year because there were no other bands to open for touring ska bands. And I think when I was in that band, that's when I met Joe for the first time. And we were probably only 18. So that's it's funny to hear that name again. Yeah, he's he's a good dude. How oh many, yeah, great guy. How many years? First of all, before I ask you how many years you were in Shrug, explain for the listeners. All right, because some of the people who are listening to this are Dayton people, and we know and love them, and they know music. So you guys are going to be patient while we break this down for people that might not be into music. Shrug was a three piece. It was just you, a guitar, Originally, you yeah. on bass, Todd on guitar, Dan on drums. To me, that means for as a bass player, you can't really hide anywhere when there's only the one other instrument. Can you explain what playing in a three-piece, what kind of what your responsibilities were, uh, making those songs come to life? Well, I was lucky to have, like I said, I was lucky to have Dan as a backbone, and then Todd taught me to play bass melodically, so. What I learned there in the three-piece days is that your, the relationship between you and your vocalist as a bass player is really so much more important than most people realize. And he was really good about guiding me along in the beginning. And uh, it, I mean, it changes. It depends on who you're playing with, too. Um, I mean, I've been in three-piece, four-piece, five-piece bands. And I would say I've kept that melodic sense, but Shrug was the first. So I think I learned almost all of that from Todd's playing. Because in a three-piece, really, no one has anywhere to hide. Like, I, at first, I wasn't confident singing background vocals, so Todd's vocals were left out there alone a lot of the time. His guitar... Nobody to play under solos. Just, it, you know what I mean? It's just, we were kind of all out in the open. And I learned a lot, honestly, from listening to their first album before I joined when Straight to Beta was out. I learned a lot from listening to Steve, the original bassist. And then Dave, the second bassist, taught me a lot in like a really short amount of time. They were both really cool guys. And 
great bass players to follow up. And yeah, yeah, the three piece thing was stressful at first. Um, I was talking to one of my best friends recently. I don't know if you remember Ryan Smith that played in the Spoo Monkeys. I and do was, not. And then he was in front row for the meltdown with me. He was our guitar player. And um, we were talking about one of my first gigs where I met him at Wright State University with Shrug. And I remember all I owned was this Frankenstein Fender Jazz fretless that had like a 65, I think it was a 65 body and like a 77 neck that someone had put together. And that thing's intonation was awful. And I had to still be there with just Todd and Dan trying to make it work. And somehow I limped my way through those first few gigs because it couldn't have been great. I'm glad I don't have recordings of those. <laughs> I want to know how long it took you to learn how to
That's a good question. You know, I, I was so, like, so passionate and, like, frenzied about shrug stuff. I mean, especially the first year or two, like, when I don't think anything, I don't mean this to sound arrogant at all. I don't think anything took me all that long. I think before my first rehearsal with him or tryout, when Dave was kind of leaving the band, I think Dan gave me a cassette tape, which, there we go, that dates me. It dates and all of us. <laughs> it had, like, I want to say at least fifth, like 15 songs on it. And they were basically like, here, learn these. We'll see you at the tryout, you know, whatever. And I was like, what? No chord chart? Nothing, just just listening. Wow. And so I showed up and I knew most of it, but I think I was so focused that I don't think Undone, it probably took me a little longer than some of the other stuff for sure. And there was one shrug from straight to beta that we talked about playing as a trio in my early days that I just never got comfortable with because I wasn't being into slap bass at the time. And it was a song called Wisdom off of Straight to Beta. And I was like, I I I don't think I can do this right now. Like and eventually it kind of came around where Todd was like, yeah, it doesn't really sound like we sound now. And we kind of just let that one go eventually. But yeah, I don't think we ever played that with me. Some of those songs were just concentrating more on melody than being a bass player. So it's, you know, it's just tricky on a few of them. My, the hardest songs for me to learn are longer songs with less changes, honestly. Like, I remember I used to find Ice really challenging because it was a much longer song and we really didn't change that much. And I would lose, I would lose my counts. Uh, and like for and forget where we were, and so I, I think I liked I almost liked shorter, more challenging arrangements than like longer, sort of like zoned out kind of stuff. Like, I mean, I always liked Ice on the album, but I remember live a few times I would be like, "Oh, is this where I change?" I mean, you guys that was like a ten minute song live. That. Yeah, thing had some length on it. But still, a great song, and Todd's sort of, like, sitar approach to it on the acoustic was cool and all that. And, yeah, Dan was great. I think I was the one that would get lost in it on stage and then go, oh, is it time? <laughs> and I feel like I guessed a few times and maybe got it right. So how long, how many years were you in truck? If memory serves me right, four and a half years, somewhere around that that range. That's a good long time. Oh, yeah, it was a, a great run. A lot of bands don't even last one year, so four and a half. I mean, I say this, and Trug's been around longer than many children I know, but... Yeah, my, uh, I mean, my own kid is eight years old now, and he doesn't touch Trug's <laughs> career. Not remotely close. Um and after Shrug, you were in front row for the meltdown. Yeah, that was right after Shrug. That was the the songwriter for that was the gentleman that was in um, Lucky Machine, right, Jeremy? J Jeremy Little, yeah. yeah who I've known, I've known since we were eleven. We played on our first little league baseball team together. What position did you play? Uh, I was catcher. You look like a catcher. I know. I've got the the stocky build for it. No baseball is getting past me. Nope. Uh, talk to me about that band. I remember going out and seeing the shows, and I have that CD in here somewhere. Um, I just really, I was so into, like, reuniting with Jeremy because we had stayed friends for such a long time. And uh, we reunited with a drummer that we played with in our earlier days. 
says my band front row for the belt down wasn't my first band i was in with jeremy so when we were i think maybe even still in high school jeremy and i were in a band together called brother joe that was sort of more of a poppy punk sort of thing and the first drummer for front row matt randall was the drummer in that band also so when we started front row the idea was to get the core of that band back together now that we were all better players and you know i thought we wrote some great stuff and then we brought in ryan who had been in the spoon monkeys who you know you only remember if you were really drunk at some spoon monkey shows because that's what they were for yeah i never actually they were done by the time i started going to shows but i know that brian um wacky brian was in that band too right yeah yeah that's exactly why when i left to move to nashville with front row i'd known lackey for oh my god sort of indirectly since he was in a band called king droopy which oh, yeah, with that and Eric. Now, see, I yep. wasn't around for that either, but I know all those guys, so I've heard all those stories. Exactly. So that was why I felt comfortable saying, you guys should get Lackey to take over. And Lackey, all he did was blow it away. Like, he was awesome. And he's, I mean, he stayed with that man. I had, oh, look at that. My goodness. Yeah, tell the people what I'm holding because they can't they can't see it on the audio That is version. all the wrong things by Front Row for the Meltdown, our one completed record. I told you recorded I recorded in LA. Wow. Y'all went big time, huh? Well, we had a management company at the time and they were based in LA. Um it was the head of the management company was a guy named James Akers. Um, I don't know if you remember during the swing revival. In like, I have bad memories of that. By the way, I know, a, I know how to do that dance now because of that time. Oh, you and Hoflick should partner up. Look, all my he friends learned how to do it, so I had to learn how to do it, you know? Yeah, well, there was a band called Royal Crown Review that was part of that, and James was their guitarist. So, and he was from Yellow Springs, but anyway, he signed us to this management deal and we went out and recorded that album with the original drummer from Social Distortion. Well, that's cool. Yeah, like in his house, in his basement studio, which was a lot of fun.
But by then we had hired, we had gotten this Nashville session drummer named Rich Redmond because Matt had quit the band. And now Rich Redmond is Jason Aldean's drummer. He went, he went big time in the uh, pop country world. Well, that's got to be a lot easier work for a drummer, though. Uh, and a much better paycheck. <laughs> so, yeah, we went to Nashville, did that album in L.A., did some tours, and ultimately all of them wanted to go to L.A. And me and my wife at the time wanted to go back to Dayton. So I departed, they moved out there, and that was the end of that. What was it like having a management company direct you? It's it's a it's a give and take. It was cool that we got to go record that in that environment, but in my opinion, that was the only really good thing that came out of it. Like it was kind of a fledgling management group. I mean, James and Chris that ran it loved those guys to death. I'm not wanting to put blame on them, but they were kind of I think they were kind of new and didn't know exactly where to put us. And I don't know we. We had a good time, but ultimately it just, it didn't lead to anything. Jeremy's done great though. Jeremy's got a bunch of uh, music and TV shows and st stuff like that now. Which is he went I mean, one of the only paths to making a decent living in the music business these days. Yeah, true enough. One of his, one of his best moments where I freaked out because I think I was already living out here is uh, there was a show called Fringe. And there's a scene where one of the characters drops a needle on a record and it's Jeremy doing a solo acoustic version of if I only had a brain. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And it was so cool. Cause I sat up and I was like, I know that voice. So I like messaged him. I was like, is this you? He's like, yep. Weird. He probably wrote most of the songs for um, lucky machine too. Didn't he? I think a lot of them, him and Gary, the singer, <laughs> I think they were responsible for most of it. Yeah. I I guess I've heard enough of him to know that I like his songwriting. <laughs> he he can write a song. I mean, he's proved it now. He's, you know, from what I understand, he did this project where he did a Bowie tribute tour. It was like a small tour overseas. And there he got to sing alongside Gary Oldman doing Bowie covers. Well, like, that's cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty awesome. So he's uh yeah, guy's talented as hell. He's in he's back in Nashville now. He left LA, went back to Nashville. In fact, I think everyone that was out there, Ryan just moved to New York like a few months ago. So he's given the big apple a shot. Which I don't I don't have the balls to do. <laughs> I find all of those cities are nice to visit, but I would not want to live in any of them. Man, it's it's. I mean, it's expensive where I live. It, it is expensive then, where you live. <laughs> and then you look at that, and you're like, "Oh, your rent's eight hundred dollars more a month than where I live. Like, that's insane." That's why Dayton's not so bad. It's affordable. No, the last rent I paid in Dayton before moving here was four hundred bucks a month for a two bedroom apartment with like twenty foot ceilings, like <laughs> in the Oregon district. Like, nice, pretty nice apartment. That costs you probably three times that now, but that's still a lot better. You're going to get a lot of places. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I moved here, and my first apartment here was in Boulder, much smaller, and cost 900 a month. Like, right off the bat, went from, like, four to nine, and realized that the job I took out here that transferred me was just barely paying me enough for the difference in what I was spending. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. So after Front Row for the Meltdown, you managed to uh, get into Flyway Minion, which is one of my favorite all-time bands from Dayton. How'd, uh, how'd that happen for you? You know Patrick. Yep. He's rather insistent when he wants to be. Yes. And I think I'd been back from Nashville for four days. And I went to, oh, oh, no, 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 I'm blanking. Um, Elbows. 
that was the club and the like Chinese restaurant after yep. hours or whatever. It's, it's long gone, but I remember it fondly. Yeah, Patrick was running sound, and I walked in, and he said, he said, hello, we had our pleasantries, and then he said, I'm working on this new recording with this band, with this guy, Tim Pritchard, who I didn't really know yet, because uh, he's younger than me, and he said, you're going to come record, and I think you're going to be great for this band, and I was like, dude, I just got back, and he was like, yeah, so what? Like, you're coming, come to BHA, you're going to record. And I was like, oh, okay. So I showed up like a week later. I think I did two tracks the first night. And I met Tim and all that. And they were just like, do you want to be in the band? I was like, okay, why not? And then it took us a while. Uh, John Lakes had recorded drums and some bass for that before i got back yep he's actually on the liner notes for that uh as the yeah. tracking drummer for a lot of it yeah so he he had his hands full at the time i think with captain captains of industry and motel bed no i don't know if motel beds were functional right at that time but he was doing a couple other things and so i kind of returned the favor that patrick because Patrick kind of just told me I was going to be in the band. He didn't really ask. And then I kind of did the same thing to Hoflick. Because <laughs> I've known, I've known Hoflick again forever. And I just said, I, I think you need to be in this band. So he came down and uh, the last piece was Grainy. And Grainy was the one that really messed my brain up because he killed it the first time he showed up. And we were rehearsing at Christopher's restaurant because Tim's dad owns it. Used and to. They used to. He sold it since then. To. Oh, did he sell it? Yeah. Oh, you've been, you've been out of town a long time. <laughs> 15 years. Yeah. In February. Yeah, it's been, I don't know, three, um, three four years maybe since uh, ownership changed there. Okay. So we were rehearsing there, and Granny blew me away on keyboards. I didn't find out till later that Granny wasn't a keyboardist. Nope. <laughs> at the at the time. I was like, what? He had no idea what he was doing. No idea. And impressed all of us the first time he showed up. That kid is something else, man. So yeah. And then man, I mean my time with that band, that might overall be my favorite band I've been in, just because it's so hard to find five people that can gel like that. Like that's a lot of that's a lot of guys to get on the same page to that degree. And I just felt like it was such a good fit for everybody.
such a great time and yeah that was i i still treasured the time with those guys the shows were good the albums were good and what makes me sad is there is songs that you guys had that never made it onto a cd i know you wrote this like soulful gospel song that you sang lead on in that band and i totally remember seeing you guys do it at the weirdest venue ever that uh, roxy's diner I don't know the, what it was called when you were playing there, but it was, it's a weird place to go see a rock show. But I remember you sang lead on this super black-sounding soul song, and I'm like, oh, look at these white boys bringing, bringing some soul up in here. And, but, it, but the song was really good, and I wish I remember what it was called. It was called Kind of Queen, and it was sort of a song about my divorce at the time. and. Yeah, I I've always been a huge soul R&B guy. Like I think if you're a bass player and you don't spend any time with soul and R&B, you're screwing up. Like yep. So that that one purely came out of me and it's one of the only songs I ever wrote to be like lead on and I loved playing it, but yeah, it didn't it got recorded. It just Who has that? Every Like where can I find Patrick it? Patrick has to. Patrick has to have it somewhere. Oh, next time I'm in on there, old hard drive. Next time I'm in there, I'm going to be asking about it. We had most of a new album done when I moved out here. It just didn't go anywhere. But Patrick's always like, he stays busier than he knows what's good for him. He does. That has not changed. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure he's doing 10 projects at a time. He's a hard dude to get in. If you want to book him, you better do it several, several weeks in advance. Is he still, he's still doing real love? Yep. Uh, Man, I... And he's putting out, I mean, this is supposed to be an Adam promotion episode, but let's talk about Patrick a little bit. He puts out a lot of... Oh, no, we're f- I'm fine doing that. <laughs> well, here's... I think this is the only way we're going to be able to promote Patrick because he doesn't want to do a podcast. He says he gets nervous. And I asked him, aren't you the dude that like tours with Black Jacket and plays in front of 5,000 people and you'd get yeah, nervous maybe, talking to one dude on a podcast? <laughs> I, I don't get it. I mean, but... Maybe Patrick has to have the guitar as a shield. Like, <laughs> I could see it knowing him as long as I have. I could see it because I remember we met in my early Shrug days. He was in a band called Velour and we did some shows together and i've i've always loved patrick but yeah i can kind of see him maybe getting a little shy in in that situation yeah i find like talking to one other person is pretty easy but uh i i would be the one like quaking if i had to play a show in front of 5000 people i would love to but like all the way up until the show starts i would be a complete wreck yeah i will uh We'll get there eventually, but I will tell you, I played one show out here in that situation, and I thought I was going to vomit several times. No, let's just tell that story now. You just mentioned it. Go tell the story. So so I spent a summer playing bass, sitting in for the bass player for a group called the Ian Cook Band. And Ian Cook is this highly talented pianist, celloist, singer, and he had this really cool group built behind him. And... Uh, Wit, their bass player, was gone for like almost a whole summer, and they asked me to sit in. And the last show of the summer they were going to do was at Red Rocks. So, oh. 
Yeah. So Wit came back about a week before that, but he was such a gracious guy and he was happy I filled in. And he said, no, we'll both do it. Like I'll play percussion when you're playing bass. We'll kind of like figure it out. Like, but you deserve to be there. You just covered for me for a couple of months, whatever. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. So then we get there and it was a combined three band night as part of a um, event for the Denver Film Society. So there were three bands. And then at the end of the night, they showed a movie on the giant backdrop for Red Rocks. So it was sold out at Red Rocks. And I had to go up there and play for like an hour and a half. And I, man, I've never been that ill before playing in my life. That's pretty cool, though. Oh, it was a fantastic opportunity, man. If anyone gets to, can ever play Red Rocks, do it. That did place you, is Did magic. you get a picture from the stage? Yeah, sure did. Or 50 of them? I Yeah, I think I have some... But the person who was taking all of them at that time was now my ex-girlfriend. So I don't think I have all of them. <laughs> uh, I When I think of Red Rocks, I think of uh, U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday performance there that I've watched like a zillion times. Yeah, and even to sound like, you know, I won't be as popular for this statement probably, but I remember... There was a time when I really loved the Dave Matthews band live at Red Rocks. And I remember listening to that when I was younger a lot. I think mostly just because I liked their bassist a ton. Dude, the rhythm section of that band is almost peerless. Like, well, first of all, I don't know why. I mean, Carter's got so many drums in that kit, but I think he managed to hit them all. He does. I'm sure. I'm sure. I, yeah. And um, Stefan's a great bassist. I mean, he was fantastic. I, I would, yeah, I think I, I always liked the room section more than Dave, but definitely. But yeah, I remember thinking of that record, U2, all these albums, and going, I can't believe I'm on this stage right now. Now, here's what's messed up it was so hot when we set up that it, it melted and curved my pedal board. It was like 107 on stage. Ooh. And the, the bottom is all just like concrete. It got so hot that I went to go play and had been sitting there for like an hour and it was just like curved up on the sides from how hot it was. It's <laughs> amazing that none of your pedals melted. Uh, I had to take one out of the chain because it wasn't working, but the rest held up. Yeah, that was it was cool and just bizarre at the same time. Plus, we played there the night after Tool played there. And we, we were in the green room, and there was some odd stuff left behind. They didn't bother <laughs> to clean it up first? Uh, I don't know. I just remember finding a few relics of Tool's visit. <laughs> Rock and roll relics. Yeah. Uh, so you have also met uh, Victor Wooten. Oh, yeah. Yeah, awesome guy. Yeah, tell me, I, I, I've heard you talk about this before, but I want to get this on record. So tell me about how you managed to meet. I, I mean, he's the greatest living bassist right now, right? Like, I don't think there's anyone alive better than him. He is, I mean, he's in the top three, to be sure. Like, um, he's taken on such a big role as an educator, which I think is cool. Very much. That that there hasn't been as many like Wooten records put out, but it's cool that he's holding all these base camps and, and all that stuff. And yeah, I met him. I met him twice. Cause I met him once in Ohio and once out here. And the first one, where was that first one? It was somewhere weird. Oh, shoot. I'm totally blanking, but I've got stuff signed from both. I met him out here. He played the Boulder Theater. And then he did a little clinic 
at this little music academy in the town I live in. And I went and got to meet him and I got like a shirt signed, the vinyl for the first record signed and all that. And I didn't spend a ton of time with him, but the time I did, he was, he was so open to any musician asking whatever questions and his education, the way he teaches theory is so cool. And like one of my favorite things he ever said is like, you know, if you're learning bass or guitar, whatever, remember you're never more than half a step away from being correct. And I was like, wow, that's okay. That's cool. And then I remember really testing that theory with this group I played with out here that never really did shows. It's been only the last, like since my kid was born, there's a couple of guys I play with that do like a lot of jazz fusion stuff. And we write a lot of instrumental stuff. And I've really tested Wooten's theory about the half step away thing. And he's, he's pretty dead on. You can make almost any note work. Just have to pay attention to the next one. But yeah, meeting him was great. He was super gracious, and I, the when I saw him out here, what I found amazing is that he toured with another bass player. So there was a guy like holding down bass lines while Victor would just go off. Okay, and I. And I thought, man, how humble do you have to be to be that guy for Victor Wooten? Yeah. Like, and I think his name's Anthony Wellington. He's amazing on his own right. But I just like you really have to like put yourself in a, in a humble position as a bass player to just go. No, I'm going to let him go. But also cool of Victor to include another bassist. Well, yeah. Um, was that Ned's Atomic Dustbin, that rock band that had two bassists back in the two day? Two bass players. Yep. And one of them would play always. bass, and one of them would play like noodly stuff, right? Yep. One of them always had like way was way up high on the neck. One of them was holding down roots. And yeah, I'll never forget that. I think I still have that album somewhere. It's crazy. So at the moment, you don't have a current active project, right? No, no. Actually, I'd say since I play with, there's two guys I play with, but our thing hasn't been to like go out and do venues. We've just been kind of playing for our own enjoyment. And we've done a bunch of recordings, which something may come out of uh, once we go back through all the files. Todd Widener has influenced me to also do my own solo record while I still have the days ahead of me. You should. And here's the problem. Todd has played all his songs for a lot of people and has feedback from such things. All the stuff I have that would go on my first solo record has been written in the last few years, and I haven't played it for anyone. Hey, so I did that. <laughs> no oh, one had, really? You didn't? You know what? My first record, I never played any of that stuff out. No I kidding. Yeah, and a couple of those songs a couple of those songs were pretty old, by which I mean, like I mean, one of them I wrote 15 years ago and one of them five years old. But my first record, um, I did the record, put out the record. We didn't do a release show until six months after the record was out. Wow. In fact, the first time I ever heard those songs playing live, because, you know, when you're a solo guy, you don't just grab a band and play live. You have to record in sessions. And since Hopelick was my drummer and he doesn't like to record live, he preferred just to play by himself to the click, which is cool. Um, I never even heard my own songs played live until we were rehearsing for the show. What? Yeah. Um, and I learned I really can't sing most of those songs on my first record and play the bass lines I was playing on that record. It, um, since then, I've been playing, I've been playing out, and I've had to simplify my bass lines as a result so that I can sing and play at the same time, which is cool. I don't mind it. It's just another one of those. It is nice to get some audience feedback and figure out what works and what doesn't. But yeah, my first record, no one had heard any of that stuff when I went and made the made the record and. Wow, I'm a much cool. better musician now, but I'm very proud of it. Um, it was a lot of work. Um, so basically all that to say, don't let that stop you. Like, if you believe in the songs, go get it done. 
Yeah, I mean, I just, there's stuff I really like, and I thought about kind of using Todd's route to get some reaction, like audience reaction, by like releasing acoustic versions on Instagram and stuff like that. Yep, that's totally doable. He, he's been busting his butt lately, man. He's got content for days. He has a social media professional on his side. Oh, man, I need one of those. Me too. Because I don't like social media. <laughs> Me neither. But but here's the thing. If you're going to be an independent musician, you got no choice. Like, that's how that's, true. that's how we market these days. The yeah, world has changed since, since you were in, since you were heavy in the business. Oh, yeah, I've noticed. And there's any, anyone in the field can make me feel old these days. And yet Todd's older than me, and still he's, he's he's out there crushing it. He's doing a really good job of adapting to, like, you know, he's a humble guy. He's not afraid to listen to other people and change his approach to fit the new situation. Also, it kind of helps that he's awesome. Yeah, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> that doesn't hurt him having, at all. Having a mountain of talent, you know, that can overcome a lot of things. That's why I see I see like his stuff, and I've messaged with him a fair amount, re- like in the recent past since he's been putting stuff out. But then I go and I look at like all these bands in Dayton that are putting stuff out, and like the stuff from like Magnaphone Records, and look at Dan's feed, and I'm like, Dan is the drummer for all of these bands. <laughs> yeah, basically. Like, how do you, I don't even know how he has the time? Yeah, I mean, he's. He's still doing. I mean, God, he's in so many bands. Yeah, he just joined Heather Redmond's band. Um, I'm not gonna remember what their name is, but it's uh, him and Lackey and David Payne and another fella, and they're playing Heather Redmond songs, and she's awesome. What a great crew! I love Heather. I love Heather to death. In fact, um, I haven't been back to Dayton as much in the past couple of years because of COVID and all that, but. One of the times right before that, I got to spend a night at Heather and David's house when they first bought it, and they had like a big housewarming thing, and I just happened to get into town, and I ran into Patrick that he came that night, and all these people showed up, and I got to talk to David a lot, who I didn't really know that well, and it was one of the greatest nights. Like, Heather, Heather is so cool. Very much so. I think- I think she still has a guitar that I gave her years ago because she didn't have one at the time. And she was playing with... Um... Late Night Drivers? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. With Billy and whoever else was in that, man. That was a while back. I remember that band. Strong Pixies vibes I got from them. Yeah, I seem to remember that too. But yeah, she's she's always been great, and I'm happy to see people are thriving. And last that visit in Dayton, like Dan and everybody made sure I got like a care package of everything Magnaphone had released, so I have all that stuff, which is fantastic. That was oh, that was yeah, because that was the only Shrug vinyl I think. Ashes yeah. to ashes. No, 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 the double. Um, I just forgot the name of the record. Oh, oh. Uh, oh no, it's yeah, no, 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 you're the right. The double. I'm wrong. Hang on, no, I'm going to Google We're I'm both too Google old it. for this. Easy is the new hard. There you go. That's the one. You know, it's funny about that record, at least to me. New Amsterdam's on it. And that song's been around for so long. Yeah. And Bender's on it. And I must say, I prefer Bender the first way you guys did it back in back in the day. But that managed to make it to Easy as the New Heart. What I love about Shrug over the years is you could do two different versions of a bunch of stuff. Uh, when When we first wrote, I mean, you'll remember, this is back in the days when you were always at the shows, the version of Age Nowhere that oh, yeah. you wrote. It was the rock. It wasn't like, it got Wilco'd, I guess you could say. But It did get Wilco'd. I re- it totally did. Don't tell anyone. I like the original better. I love both versions. That's what I find fascinating. No, they're like, both good, but I like the original better because I'm a 90s rock kid, right? So Yeah, I do too. I'm, I'll just go ahead and. 
follow you, you, you don't down happen, that one. You don't happen to have any uh, recordings of that the old way, do you? I I actually might. I'd have to do a little digging, but I'll look for you. I would. I'd love to hear for Mustality's sake. Did Did you know that there is a Dayton band named Age Nowhere now? I did. I met some of those guys when I was in town a few years ago. They're nice good. kids, man. They're good. Yeah. Their second record is called Age Nowhere Strikes Again because I saw that. It, you have to, right? I I think it's awesome. I think it's great, man. Anytime, anytime the next generation shows that they knew anything about the previous generation is kind of nice. Yeah, a lot of good art came out of our town. So e- even though you're not like making records anymore, it doesn't mean you don't have an artistic outlet. You have channeled your creativity into a new artistic direction, which still involves standing up in front of people. Let's talk oh, about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So let's see, for about year and a half before the pandemic started, I was out quite a bit doing stand-up comedy. A um, lot of open mics, a lot of a lot of hour and 15-minute drives to do five minutes on stage. It is a brutal thing to try. And you want to talk about me being nervous when Shrug was a trio and being naked and alone. There's nobody getting your back in stand-up. Like, if you're failing, you are failing. And I know what it feels like because I have bombed hard many times at open mics. Um, yeah, I just, I'm just now getting back to it. They closed down everything out here for so long. I mean, it's that way everywhere, but some of the main clubs out here just reopened like last few months and there hasn't been as many open mics to do. So I've got this notebook I've been keeping for the last two years, full of stuff. And I don't know if any of it's any good until I get it in front of people. And I'm scared now because I I had a year and a half of experience and I was just getting comfortable and then everything shut down. And so now I'm about to head back out and see if uh, anyone's going to find any of it funny. So this is a skill set that I don't have and I'm fascinated by that art form. We'll, We'll get around to why eventually, but first I want to know what, what made you decide to start doing that? It takes a certain amount of uh, guts to get up there and tell jokes that you don't know if other people are going to like. I was going through. I mean, I think the weirdest part is the answer is. I was going through like clinical depression. And I was listening to probably as much comedy at the time as I was music just to like lift my spirits. And I just thought, yeah, maybe if I go try this, I'll be, I'll get out of my head a little more and get some of it out there. And you know, it worked for a while. Like I was, my moods improved. It was just nice to hear people laugh, like, and occasionally not laugh at all. Um, but I've only been heckled a couple times, which is nice. How did you handle it? Um, the first time, very poorly. <laughs> I just basically attacked the guy from stage, and he got drunk and uh, took a swing at me at the end of the night. <laughs> so I didn't handle that one well at all. And then I remember another time I got, I just decided to like run with it after I'd watched more people who are good at crowd work and stuff like that. And, and it was fine. The, the guy and the girls, it was a couple that were giving me a hard time and I just sort of ran with them on it. And they came up at the end of the night and they were like, we were just messing around, man. We, We thought that was funny. And I was like, okay, that's better way to handle that. I don't want anyone taking punches at me. I'm 44. I don't need that. <laughs> uh, so when you're rehearsing for one of those, how, how, I, want, I, I understand I've never done it, but I understand it's a lot of work. How long It's how long do you rehearse for a five-minute set? I want to drive this home. Oh, uh, putting a, 
I would guess leading up to a five minute set, an hour for each minute, like, and it, you can't really rehearse it because so much of it is just timing. And I could walk around here making recordings in my apartment, whatever, but I have no sense of if my cadence is good, you know, any of that until I get in front of an audience. And at that point, like I said, sometimes it's a real bad night. Are you going to keep it up? I, it, yeah. It seems like you enjoy it. I do. I do. And I plan on getting back out there. I'm just, just been waiting for things to get opened again. And some of the open mics that I was doing before still aren't back up and running. So I'm slowly getting back out there. Most comedians say you're not good for you don't get the whole thing together for at least 10 years. So you've got and like seven years to go, right? Eight years. Yeah. Ago? Yeah. I'll be, uh, I'll be in my mid fifties. Maybe when it starts working, my kid, maybe my kid will take up the mantle. On a side note, I feel like musicians and comedians have something in common that we're all kind of messed up. Yeah. Like, I don't think you can be normal and do either of those things for a job. Right. No, um, absolutely not. And, you know, it almost feels like just as many comedians overdose or commit suicide as musicians. Like, it's, it's, yeah, the art is a way to deal with the darkness. Right. You're actually well, a funny dude. Oh, thanks, man. I mean, I'm not done with music by any means yet, but I do like doing comedy. And now I'm kind of like, it's weird, I'm kind of like finding my way back into uh, the passion for bass playing because my eight-year-old, I bought him a, a little miniature scale P bass. Uh-oh. And he's had it for a couple of years, but he's just started to take interest. So I'm kind of like... I figure if I didn't start till I was 19 and I could teach him what I know and he starts at eight, he might be pretty awesome. Yeah. And then he, he can make his way in that or whatever he wants to do. But so I'm kind of finding my way back to being, I mean, I still pick up, I you know, pick up basses all the time and play for my own enjoyment, but it's kind of fun having him start to ask questions about music and stuff like that. Is he and, still the main subject of uh, a lot of your stand-up? Yeah, because he's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> the kid's got a big brain and a lot of curiosity, and he's got, between me and his mom, like, we're very similar, but then we have, you know, different views on enough things that, like, he gets feedback from a lot of different angles, and he's really curious, and now his whole thing is, like, at eight years old is like the birth of the universe. He asked me all kinds of questions about that stuff. And I, I always tell him, honestly, I'm like, nobody knows this for sure, but here's what has been presented. But he's super curious and I hope he gets into music, but if not, yeah, maybe he'll do what I should have done and played music and gone to college. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you say that. I just had a chat with uh, with the gentleman who did that, and he said that everything he learned in college about music he could have gotten without having spent the money to go to college. Oh, sure. I've heard that from, yeah. I mean, I should have played music and gone to college for something profitable. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, we don't make music for the money. Although, to quote the dude from Almost Famous, some money would be nice. Some money would be nice. There's a few comedy sets that I have up on YouTube that were from the year and a half before the pandemic. Everything's under, I think, Adam Edwards' music and comedy. And just watch the IG page because in the next couple of weeks, I'm hoping to start releasing some acoustic demos. Please do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold you to that when this podcast has the air, by the way. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's You've always been, you were a big motivator when I was young, and you can pick that back up if you want. I will try. You were a big motivator for me. I have stolen a lot of things that I've seen you do while playing shows and incorporated them into my own bass style. So it, all your years of labor have not been in vain. They helped 
make other art, which is really kind of what we want, right? Yep. That's awesome, man. I appreciate it. And you're killing it and putting out good stuff. And who knows, maybe we'll actually get to collaborate at some point. I would love that. And it's a lot easier than you think online these days. So yeah, let's, let's do that. Thank you once again to Adam Edwards for taking the time to talk to me and for being an exemplary musician for a long time. Dear listener, thank you for hanging in there with me and Adam and listening to our conversation. Would you mind doing me the favor of subscribing to this podcast wherever you might listen or liking or leaving a review? Those things are extraordinarily helpful. This Friday... We're going to take a detour away from music and talk about baseball on the podcast. So, yeah, a non-music episode coming your way later this week. Bye, everybody.